All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian and anarcho-capitalist perspective. Tonight is episode 149 of the show, and we are going to be going all the way to Arrakis, uh, the desert planet Dune, to get on some of that spice. Spice, spice, baby. This is episode uh, 149, like I said. This is the Actual Anarchy Podcast. My name is Daniel Elwood, and my co-host is Robert Paul Johnson, and he is here. He is in a little bit of pain, but why don't you tell us all about it there, my friend, before we get into the last night's portion of the show. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me back on the show. I am here. Mentally, I'm fairly sound, but I don't know how it is with you guys. But when I'm in pain, sometimes you can't quite focus as well as you otherwise should have. But I will do my best to soldier on. I am dealing with a tremendous amount of back pain. I'm sure everyone's had that at some point in time in their life, especially the older you get. And uh, hopefully it'll be on the men soon. Um, my physical activities for the next week or so are looking very, very minimal. So if I can rest this thing up and get back in the game. That does certainly sound like a drag, my friend. But, you know, it's uh, the price you pay as you get older and uh, do a bunch of moving and whatnot. So I do wish you a speedy recovery. And I will send you an email with some back stretchies that should help if you uh, perform them twice daily until our demands are met. But uh, I've also got another prescription, and that is the last nighter's portion of the show. Well, I'm excited. Hey, everyone. It's Daniel Elwood and Robert Johnson, the last nighters. And the last nighters are... Brought to you on the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. Do check it out at thelaunchpadmedia.com. This is episode 92 of the show, and as it's pumpkin spice season, we're going to dive into David Lynch's adaptation of Dune with our friend Luke Tatum, the anarchist Luke Tatum, who is the progenitor of the Culture of Peace podcast. But before we introduce him uh, in just a moment here, I do want to just let you know that we are now an affiliate for a new magazine that has long-form essays. Um, let's, it's uh, economic writings, not, uh, not your basic bitch stuff, but some stuff that might be um, accessible to the layperson. So it's called The Bastion, or Bastion Magazine, and you can find the link to that on our show notes page at lastnighters.com slash 92, or you can go to lastnighters.com slash bastion, that's B-A-S-T-I, O-N. But without further ado, here is anarchist Luke Tatum. He is uh, creating a game called Demicorp, and he also runs the Culture of Peace podcast, on which I was a guest uh, recently, and he was our guest last spring uh, for Ip Man, the Donnie Yen film. He did that back in March with us. That's lastnighters.com slash 63. And he's an all-around good guy. So uh, take it away, Luke. Introduce yourself uh, and uh, tell us about what you're doing uh, with your project over there at Human Actions Studio. Or sorry, Human Action Studio. Got to get that right. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be back. Yeah, well, we're certainly happy to have you here. And and I am sorry for messing up the name there. 
But um, I think you have a campaign going on uh, for the next couple of uh, maybe week, week and a half. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about the game and the campaign so that uh, people can know how to support what you're doing over there, because I think it's a really, really cool project. Yeah, sure. Thanks so much. So uh, we are Human Action Studios, and we're making a game called Dummy Corporation. It's a mobile game coming out for iPhones, Android devices. Uh, Sometime next year, we're aiming for Q2 for a release on that. But basically, it's a business simulator. It's all very peppy and commercial and fun. You're selling fast food to the eager population uh, through your drive-thru. And But secretly, you're also funneling money to a underground CIA black site where you'll do all manner of shady and nefarious things. Uh, so it's a narrative-driven idle game, essentially, if you're familiar with those. Yeah, that sounds really cool. It's, it's uh, kind of an appropriate name for your studio because you're actually taking human action and getting something brought into the world that you want to see in the world. So how would people go about supporting that? I want to put a link to that. And uh, is there a link you can throw out there so that people can find it rather easily? Yeah, so dummycorporationgame.com would be the easiest way to get there. You can search us on Facebook. You can just go to Indiegogo and search for Dummy Corporation. Those would be the easiest ways to do it. Um, But we are ending this on October the 16th. That'll be the final day of crowdfunding. And um, everything that we can raise now gets us, you know, closer to a more polished product sooner. So we would like to get this game out as quick as possible. But, um, you know, we're a small team and we don't have a lot of startup capital. So we're just trying to stay as independent as we can. And this lets us do that. And we have some really cool rewards, uh, not to go down the list, but we do have like ways that you can actually be in the game and contribute to the development of it. So it's pretty cool. Now, once the game is released, do you have other ways to monetize it? Yeah, there'll be some paid options. It's a free game, uh, but there will be some paid options. It's got a real key keyed in focus on not being absolutely ridiculously expensive. Um, so a lot of games that are on mobile are free until you've played for 25 minutes. And then it's like, you know, just make three easy payments of $79.95 and you cannot die. Um, so we're, we're very, very much trying to stay away from that model. We're looking at like sub $5 purchases that are meaningful (laughs) and you don't have to make all of them all the time. Yeah, look, that sounds really great. And uh, we will have links to that. And also my prior appearance on your show, Culture of Peace, and your prior appearance on our show uh, on the show notes page for this episode of Dune at lastnarrative.com slash 92. Now, speaking of Dune, you brought this up as one that you wanted to do. So uh, maybe tell us a little bit before we get really going here. What made you want to do Dune uh, for your appearance tonight with us on The Last Nighters? Well, so I was rereading the novel Dune, which is one of, I mean, it's one of my favorite sci-fi novels and certainly one of the more beloved sci-fi series out there. Um, And so I thought, well, it's been a long time since I've read the book. I'm really enjoying rereading it. The movie I remember watching once, but I didn't remember it too well. I'm very struck by how different the movie and the book are. So that'll be fun to kind of get into when we dive into the actual um, meat of things here. But um, I just, I love Frank Herbert, the author of the novel, and he's got some really interesting perspectives on the state and on power. And that's kind of what Dune is a commentary on is fanatical power and people who attract followers to themselves. Uh, So there's a lot of, I think, juicy stuff to get into here. Now, a lot of that though, doesn't it come into play later on in the Dune series with like Dune Messiah and then God Emperor of Dune? Well, so I actually have not read all of the other books. I've only read the first one. Okay, I I think I got, I finished God Emperor, and I don't remember if there's another book. I mean, I know Frank's son wrote 
a bunch of more Dune books like in the 90s and currently yeah. and stuff like that. I think Frank wrote four books, if I'm not mistaken. I could be totally wrong on this, but um, uh, I think he wrote four and then his son wrote maybe four more afterwards. Yeah, that sounds about right. But but I'm, I'm interested to hear your uh, your take on the original. So that'll be. Oh, nerd alert, everyone. Nerd alert. Because, well, I, I mean, well, I, I mentioned that because in Dune Messiah, um, you know, Paul becomes like this mythological type figure where everybody like basically believes in religion of Paul and he's there's like genocides carried out in his name because you know of the believers versus the non-believers and he's like very upset about the whole thing but then his and then in God Emperor uh Leto his like son I think it's his son or maybe it's his grandson or something like that becomes this half human half worm God Emperor creature this immortal being and it gets it gets some pretty interesting weird messed up stuff but anyway um, this is going to be about the movie itself. So yeah, way to spoil the novels for me. Thanks a lot. <laughs> well, that's what we do here. We spoil shit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, before we get too much further along, uh, let's start this off right. How we do, uh, with the old Google description. So here we go. Dune came out in 1984. It's an adaptation slash thriller, two hours and 17 minutes, 6.5 on that IMDb, 53% Rotten Tomatoes and 40% Metacritic. However, 82% of Google users like it, so I think it's a bit of a cult classic. The description reads, in the year 10,191, a spice called melange is the most valuable substance known in the universe, and its only source is the desert planet Arrakis. A royal decree awards Arrakis to loop uh, to Duke Leto Atreides and ousts his bitter enemies, the Harkonnens. However, when the Harkonnens violently seize back their fiefdom, it is up to Paul, Leto's son, to lead the Fremen, the natives of Arrakis, in a battle for control of the planet and its spice, based on Frank Herbert's epic novel. It had a budget of $45 million, and it didn't quite make that much back. Uh, it made about uh, $31 to $38 million. This is David Lynch's uh, biggest disappointment um, and they say, you know, greatest student and greatest disappointment. I think that David Lynch, he doesn't even talk about this uh, movie to this day. And I think that's because his vision wasn't fully realized due to the limitations at the time and uh, uh, artistic control that he did not have. So let's start off with uh, Robert's take and then we'll go over to Luke. Well, I find it interesting that Lynch thought this was a big cinematic failure. I wonder if he thought it was such because it didn't match his artistic vision or because it was such a box office. I would assume that he means his artistic vision. And although I love the world building in this film, I mean, they're just basically taking it straight from the novel. I mean, they have to come up with the designs and whatnot. This novel obviously doesn't provide any kind of visual assistance in that regard. Um, I found this movie upon rewatching. I mean, I've, I've read the original novels, like I said, up to the first four, three or four. And I've seen this movie in the past. And then again, rewatching it this week. And but I felt like this was such a dispassionate, drama-less telling of a story. Like the, he he found the most boring way to tell the story of Dune. Like at no point in time was like the 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 outcome ever in doubt. There was no like any kind of like Paul worried about the upcoming battle and what's going to happen. And oh no, it was just like and then Paul carried out a whole bunch of guerrilla terrorist attacks against the Harkonnens for a couple of years and. Then Paul led this, you know, valiant attack on the the capital city and destroyed everybody. And I don't know, it just watching the whole thing, I felt really removed from the story. Like it, it wasn't, it, it was really interesting to watch. And I liked all the, the way the characters acted and I thought the acting was all fine. But it just seemed to be the most boring way you could tell this story. And I'll have, I have some other notes, but exactly what I mean by that. 
but that's those are my initial thoughts. Well, very good. Nice opening salvo. Uh, Luke, your take on the Google description and anything that Robert has said so far. Sure. So the description, I think, is maybe emblematic of some of the bigger problems that the movie has. It's There's so many technical terms and so many names and things that get thrown around just right there in that tiny little summary. And this movie, I think, really should have been split into like two parts. I know that's more of a modern era type tactic to you know, make a part one, part one, part two out of a single book. But um, I think this really warrants it because there is so much happening. And when you look at how much had to be cut out of the movie, and I know this is something Frank Herbert didn't approve of as well. There was so many scenes that they had to cut out of the final film. Um, otherwise, it was going to be a four-hour movie. But you need those things because I, I feel like some of the key moments from the book where, you know, you need character development you need uh, moments like robert's mentioning where you have like paul isn't sure what's going to happen next and and some of these you know side characters like gurney halleck you know which is patrick stewart you know a huge name in acting um he's barely developed at all like really he isn't developed at all he's just thrown in there like there's this whole thing in the novel where he you know is playing on his set, which is his kind of guitar-like instrument and he sets that down against a column and that's the only screen time the instrument has in the whole film, but that's like central to his uniqueness. And that's just one example. You know, there's plenty of characters that are barely, barely developed. So I think it just, the whole thing felt very, very rushed to me. Yeah. I I like it. I want to completely agree with what you just said. And thank you for voicing what I didn't. And that is (laughs) that the, the little breathing moments that we usually get where the characters develop and we find out how the characters feel it's such a huge novel and it's compressed into such a short amount of time that you're right. We don't get any of those character developing moments where you actually, all we got really were a couple of, we get like a voiceover. Right. Where the, like you're thinking about, here's the character thinking about a thing. It's just like a one line thing. And then we move on. And it, it was just so rushed. And I understand it's probably a compromise of the times. Like you said, nowadays it'd be split into multiple movies, but yeah, this movie really suffers for that. It, it seemed to me more like a music video about Dune, the, the book, than than an actual story that you know any kind of it was going to engage any audience with. Maybe it is a music video, you know, with Toto. Oh yeah, all that rock music, like when he gets up on the worm for the first time, and then when the, the, the final battle's going on, it's like this is straight up a music video. Well, I for one love the music aspect of it. I mean, you got. Toto and you got Brian Eno and, and freaking Sting is even making an appearance in this thing. So I I, I do agree that it's like a, a music video. But, you know, speaking of modern times and, and splitting into two parts, uh, Denny uh, Villeneuve, the guy who did Blade Runner 2049, is set to release part one of a remake or a retelling of Dune that's more uh, true to the novel uh, coming out, I think, December 2020. And it'll be a two-parter. So like a year or two later, there will be a second part. So I'm actually um, kind of interested in that because he's he did great work on Blade Runner 2049. Well, well we will they do, see right? That's, that's good news, I suppose. Yeah, and if you remember how he uh, tackled 2049, and we have a newfound appreciation for that after talking with uh, one of our guests about it. Uh, he gave us a, a, an appreciation for the nuance in there, but it's just beautifully shot, beautiful scenery. Uh, it's an homage to the fans. Yeah, I would agree with you on the, the, the it's probably going to be a beautiful movie. Probably going to be super beautiful. But one of the big problems I had with that movie was it was also fairly boring. Yeah, you got me there. And we'll see. We'll see. Oh, we will see. But, you know, I think it's in good hands. So that's good. Depends on how you do it. You know, like there's there's so many right ways you could take Dune, I think. And it's just 
you have to wait and see, you know, are they going to take it that way or not? <laughs> yeah, I think you guys are right. But, you know, I've got high hopes. I mean, this is this is a movie, Dune, that um, really has a, a complicated plot. And I think it would do well to uh, have a, a, a more of a retelling that gives it sort of space to breathe and be able to uh, appreciate what's going on, have a little bit of that character development. And I think that uh, Denis Villeneuve, uh, if I'm pronouncing his name properly, uh, he has that ca- capacity within him. And, and I think that's what he kind of did for Blade Runner 2049. But let's get back and talk a little bit more. Uh, you know, let's get into this movie, Dune, here. Um, because, you know, it, it doesn't take a lot of time to char- to develop characters. It just sort of happens. You know, it's like a, a retelling of things. And it apparently deviates from the novel. And Luke, you can get into that in a little bit. Um, but, uh, you know, I think he does need some space to or he, he needed some space to actually, you know, get us to care about these characters. And it just doesn't really happen in this one. So a lot of these performances seem to go uh, sort of for naught or a little bit wasted, uh, which is a bit of a uh, disappointment. And I can kind of understand why David Lynch wouldn't be uh, especially proud of this particular movie. Yeah. And you, they, I mean, it is a really intricate plot and it's just kind of rushed over. Like the, the, the finding out that it's the doctor that betrays them, as I recall in the book, is like a big deal. And it is, it's still kind of a big deal. But it's like a big betrayal. Like we get to know the doctor and we get to know all these other characters and we care about them, what happens to them. So that when the doctor turns, you're like, oh, crap, that's like horrible. And in the movie, it just kind of happens. And you're just like, oh, OK, that happened. And then, oh, OK, that happened. I don't know. You got to you got to have some time for the audience to get invested before you spring that kind of thing on them. Yeah, you're not wrong on that. I mean, it it was confusing because the doctor, I mean, he sort of was like betraying his house, but then he had this ultimate plan to get revenge with the cyanide tooth and kill Harkonnen. So I don't know. Yeah. You know, in which he ultimately fails. But then uh, he sort of had a backup plan where, you know, it was the, the doctor who had like provided the uh, uh, environmental suits and gave him the means to escape. Uh, and I think he also uh, destroyed the... Um, weirding modules but then gave him the plans on how to recreate them for himself uh what do you make of all this luke what's your take on this the whole movie is rushed but i think the whole like fall of house atreides you know the storming of arakeen where the harkonnens are taking over and that, that's even more rushed than the rest of the film and the notes that i have are just basically like, what is going on here you know i just read the book and i still have no idea <laughs> what is even happening in this this segment so that's like 20 straight minutes of plot point, plot point, plot point, and then you're supposed to pick up the pieces yourself as a viewer. Um, so I feel like you have to have read the book to even stand a chance. Yeah, I didn't. I, I think I probably watched the movie back in the 80s or 90s and then had forgotten mostly of it and then read the books in like 2013, 2014. And so then now coming back to this, it was a lot easier to follow. But again, I was just so removed from the story that, I mean, at one point when he joins... Um, the Fremen, it's like he gets captured by the Fremen and then literally like a minute of screen time later and he's like their their super leader guy. It's like, okay, all right, that was easy. Like yeah. I just promised to teach you how to, you know, kill stuff with your voice and all of a sudden I'm like your messiah dude. All right. That was, you know, I I think as an audience member, you want to see some struggle. Um, you want to see some some kind of strife, some kind of you know, you can't just have everything gifted to you on a silver platter and expect to care about this character. I don't know. Did either of you really connect with Paul and his story in this just, no. just from the movie? Not at all. No, uh, he and, you know, again, not to just harp on the whole book versus movie thing, but it's something that I think is done very well in the original source material. It's just that those scenes are either absent or they've been edited uh, in such a way that it doesn't really work 
to develop the character anymore. Um, so yeah, I mean, one of the things that was incredibly jarring was, okay, you're kind of going along, there's some plot uh, with Paul and Jessica and the Fremen, and then all of a sudden he's addressing the masses and encouraging them to go storm <laughs> and, yeah. and take over the planet. It's like, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Um, I, I didn't know that you had this kind of power over these people. So it, it's disjointed. And um, but I also I also just really feel like the the key scenes that needed to be there were um, you, you have whenever Paul and Jessica first unite with the Fremen, there is a malcontent that calls Paul out. He's not you know pleased with this offworlder joining their ranks, and they have a fight to the death. And Paul has a lot of internal struggle and that just doesn't happen. So instead, oh, now you're a Fremen and then, you know, proceed. So <laughs> you just, all of the key things that I would have wanted to be in the film with, as far as character development goes are missing. Yeah. It seems a little paint by number. Yeah. It's just like, okay, I'm going to take over the planet. And then it's like step one, two, three, four, the planet's taken over roll credits. Yeah. No drama, <laughs> no tension. It was just, it was like watching a slideshow of somebody's vacation. It was so boring. <laughs> Here's some sand and some more sand and more. <laughs> this is our trip to the Middle East. <laughs> okay, okay. I mean, I get it. Spices, oil, and, you know, whatever. But, you know. And you got Iraq. Yeah, Iraq is Iraq. And I guess what? Uh, the Harkonnens are, I don't know who the Harkonnens are, but I suppose the Atreides are, what, the British? Yeah, it's probably something like that. I mean, this is all, this whole Middle East area was carved up after World War World War II, and this novel came out, what, 20, 25 years after that. So maybe it is a reference to that. I mean, th that is right, right? Like, like that's what happened after World War II. They carved up the Middle East. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you got BP and the coup in Iran and all that stuff. So, yeah, it seems fairly straightforward that he was inspired by all that. I'm not exactly sure what everything necessarily is supposed to be in his mind. It seems pretty clear allegory through the Middle East, oil. Yeah, and like oil or like spice in this movie, it's like super important resource, uh, much to Greta Thunberg's uh, consternation. Oh, yeah. And it's not like the stuff is responsible for, you know, improving the standard of living for, what, over a billion people lifted out of poverty in the past 20 years. And you wouldn't know that just looking at the, high, uh, at the headlines or anything like that. But then you got people like uh, AOC and Greta and those pushing the Green New Deal. And it would put those people back into uh, a destitute uh, position. And, and so, you know. Uh, but anyway, do you think that this is um, wh where did the the spice come from in this movie? Is it related to the worms? Is it is it worm uh, poop, uh, worm babies? What is it? But as I understood it, the spice was created by the worms. Is that right? Yes, which is a plot point that is ruined uh, <laughs> very, very, very early in the film. Yeah, it seemed really unclear. Yeah. So, Luke, you read the book uh, more recently than Robert, so maybe we can lean on you here. Does does the book go into a little bit more about, like, the mechanism on how spice is created? Like, what do the worms have to do with it? Because in the movie, it's just like, by the end of it, it's just the worms and the spice, the spices, the worms, and all that. Yeah, so in in the book, it's more spelled out, like, whenever the worms are born, there's kind of this explosion. Uh, it's like a gaseous substance underneath the... Um, underneath the sand and it's called a pre-spice mass and i guess you can smell it it smells slightly different from the regular spice which just smells like cinnamon and so there would be this kind of rupturing and that's actually how dr kynes dies in the book he's left on top of one of these pre-spice masses and it explodes and like swallows him up so it's all very symbolic because he's invested his whole life into the the planet and trying to develop the planet um to have more greenery and water and all of that uh and you know, it swallows him whole. Uh, but the Harkonnens have, you know, they, they still kill him. They just leave him there to die. 
Um, but you know, it's it's not that that's something that's revealed at the very end of the book that the worms create the spice. But I mean, it's definitely it's more of a device, I guess, in the novel. Paul says that okay, you know, we need to take this water of life, that thing that he drinks to become the Kwisatzhaderach. They take some of that and uh, forget exactly the mechanism. They take it back out and put it into a pre-spice mass and that destroys the spice. So there, there's no more spice being produced. And that's kind of how he's leveraging this whole, you know, I understand how the spice works and I can destroy it. And then no one can travel through space and no one can, you know, satisfy their addiction. Um and again, you know, like everything, it's kind of just rushed through in the movie. It's like, okay, um, we're going to destroy the spice now. <laughs> and <laughs> th therefore, we get to control the universe. Um, it's just, you know, it's just rushed. Oh, okay. Does that help make sense of it, though? So it's like worm abortions. <laughs> okay. But I mean, he's basically saying, you know, he who controls the spice or who, he who destroys it can control it, right? Yep. So like, what's, what's the point of him being able to exercise control of the spice? Is it to, um, you know, like prevent the empire from being able to control more space so they can't travel by folding space so it's a so like a way to limit the empire's power or something along those lines well now yeah i mean if you could just show up anywhere like in a moment uh with very little uh effort then you can control a lot of space with uh, violence well it's it's not just the empire right it's everybody so the and this is one of those libertarian topics that i thought would be kind of tricky to muddle through because you have not just the emperor but you also have the Chom Company, which is, you know, ostensibly private and all of this. So you have these competing forces and it's like, who's really the bad guy in the movie at the very beginning? They're blatantly, you know, saying Emperor Shaddam, you need to kill Paul Atreides. And that doesn't happen in the book at all. So, you know, th that's a reaction later on. The emperor decides that he needs to come in and clean this up, but there's no pressure from anyone. Uh, and so... But yeah, it, as far as the spice goes, I guess what um, Jessica does to become the reverend mother of the Fremen, she telepathically transmutes the water of life, which is from the worms, um, and makes it non-poisonous. So she molecularly transfigures this stuff so that it does not kill her. And that's kind of their rite of passage. And so no man's ever been able to do that. They've tried and they die. And then so Paul can do that. Therefore, he's the Kwisatz Haderach, et cetera, et cetera. But once he's done it, the thing that he realizes is that he can also destroy the spice and he can use this to his advantage because they can take the transfigured water of life and they can basically use that as a weapon to destroy the original spice. So there's this liquid <laughs> that they take and transmute and then they take it back. When it mixes back with the spice, it destroys it. It's not really explained in technical terms, but he calls it the water of death. So it's like part of the lore, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's his world. He can do what he wants, right? Right. He just says, let's destroy the, the worms. And that's kind of the whole thing. So <laughs> so I guess like, what is the emperor? Is he aware of this uh, thing that Paul is going to do? Is there some kind of prophecy or what is the motivation for the emperor? If Paul is going to destroy the spice, does does the emperor know about it? And what's, what's uh, his ploy or his plot here? Yeah. Yeah. So his Sardaukar, you know, his elite super troops, this, you know, is another thing that's not even in the film, but they're from this prison planet, right? So he kind of has his own personal Australia where he's been sending criminals to toughen up and, you know, let the fit survive. And he re he takes these people back from this prison planet, um, the ones that don't die from the hor horrific conditions there. 
and he turns them into these elite super commandos that he uses to, you know, enforce his will. And so he seems in in the novel to be just a total hard ass and, you know, you don't want to mess with him because he'll just take you out, send one legion of these Sardaukar guys and and ruin your whole your whole house. Um, but in in the movie, it's more like, yeah, okay, you have these weird guys in strange spacesuits with green backlights and they're running around, but they're overpowered in most of the scenes that they're in. You know, they they take over uh, Arakeen whenever the Harkonnens are flexing their muscles and all that. But then that's about it. You know, they're easily overrun and it's not clear why, other than the fact that now the Fremen have this weirding module, um, which is, it's all very strange. <laughs> yeah, so it's not really something he needs to like have a mechanism or explain, right? Yeah. And it's one of those things that I think maybe was contributing to the frustration that David Lynch had with the limitations he had at the era, you know, 1983, making a film. And it gives me hope for uh, when Denis Villeneuve, uh, if I'm saying that right, um, you know, he's got a lot more uh, CGI and technology and advancement, and he's got time, and it seems like creative control. And there's just so much uh, to draw from, from the source material here that I'm really excited to see what he's going to be able to do, uh, you know, with, with being able to fulfill his artistic vision uh, when it comes to... Uh, this Dune novel series. Well, yeah, there's definitely a lot of material to draw from. Uh, I mean, there's obviously been a lot of material written in this universe, so I don't know if they want to stick strictly to this original novel or play up other things, but yeah, they could go any which way with it. I think it's in good hands. Could be good, man. I don't have a whole lot of faith in Hollywood these days, but it could be good. Neither do I. Yeah, it certainly is hard to have faith in Hollywood these days, but you know, they, they do seem to have at least some good stuff coming out. And, you know, this wasn't the first time that Dune was uh, attempted to be made. I was reading uh, that there was a, the name might be Jaborski or something like that. Do you guys know anything about that? Apparently it was a fairly spectacular failure. Um, and I don't really know a whole lot about it other than that. I, have you guys, either one of you heard uh, uh, anything about that kind of uh, thing? I don't. That's that's me, sorry. Well, all right, a swing and a miss, I guess. Um, well, well, we can put something about that, like another link to that on uh, the show notes page at lastnighters.com slash 92. Um, so one of the things I wanted to sort of talk about is maybe an economic angle or like a libertarian theory of uh, property ownership. Because, uh, you know, he says you can control the spice, then you own the spice. You, if you destroy the spice, then you can control it, right? Right. So that gets into like, you know, private property theory. And, and you know, if, if you have exclusive control over something, you can choose to, you know, say you have a sandwich and you can choose to sell it or you can choose to eat it or you can destroy it or, you know, throw it out or do whatever you want with it. I mean, that's like the, the definition of property, right? You, are, you have exclusive control over what is to happen with that particular item and no one else has uh, any control over it. So long as you're not using it to, you know, hurt others or something like that, like in aggressive violence. Right. I mean, if you... Like you say, if you have a sandwich, you know, you can send it to space or do whatever you want to with it. It doesn't matter if someone else also wants it. You know, if it's your thing, you can do what you want to with it. And, of course, that's why we all say we're still renting whenever we own a house, because, you know, the government can still step in, you know, and, and take your property and still still exercise certain rights that uh, you would think as the quote-unquote owner you would have. So it's an interesting thing to kind of analyze. I mean we're not going to be in a position where we control the one source of a resource across a whole planet, but you know, you can make that much more micro. And if you have some product that you make and you are the only person that makes it, you can just stop, you know, (laughs) there's no reason that anyone would have the right to tell you otherwise, uh, because to say otherwise would be some form of slavery, right? Oh, you mean like, you know, with a government mandated health care uh, provision, you know, the doctors are enslaved to the government, something along those lines? 
Well, I, yeah, I think it's interesting to how Paul is basically claiming ownership over the entire production of Spice. Um, obviously, he sees uh, the Harkonnen rule over Arrakis as illegitimate, even though he was a part of the Atreides who were just given it, given it by the emperor. So I don't know why he thinks that he would have any more legitimate rule. But then I guess he rejects that and goes with the Fremen, who seem to have more of a claim on the spice than anybody else thing it's how they are natives to this planet and the Harkonnen Atreides are not just given it to by some emperor who just claims ownership over the entire planet sounds like government to me <laughs> um so I assume I'm, I'm thinking that yeah I, I would say that Paul probably has the best claim I mean as, as the leader of the Fremen I suppose although um I have my own issues with um and that's one thing I did want to discuss today was this concept of the Fremen in their prophecy of this leader that would lead them to true freedom. And it seems like a contradiction in terms. And I mean, although there are there can certainly be leaders like leaders in thought, you know, leaders in any given thing, as long as it's not coercive. Um, but, you know, when you when you seek out a political leader to lead you to true freedom, I, I think you're you're parking the tree as do. So I believe that Paul is acting in a political role here. He goes from one of sort of a messiah figure to a political role. He is, immediately after this movie, he assumes the title of like, and he is, and eventually he rejects it. And I'm sorry for spoilers, but because <laughs> he is kind of offended by this jihad, this holy war that springs up. Even in the end of this movie, um, they talk about the jihad that, uh, or I don't know if they call it a free hot, or a, but it's a, a holy war that the Fremen see as righteous to eradicate the, the Harkonnen overlord people or whoever is coming along and you know, essentially harvesting what they see as their property. Um, I don't know. It's interesting to me that people, even us in the liberty movement, you know, we're like a bunch of anarchists, but yet we still look to, you know, kind of like these thought leaders and generally leaders in general, to kind of point the way that we as human beings should act and move towards. Um, I think, you know, I, I think, that, you know, anarchists are probably the most unleadable of groups, but yet we still kind of look towards, you know, like we had the Ron Paul move. And we all, I think most anarchists really appreciate the Ron Paul move. I mean, apparently there are some left libertarians that don't. It boggles my mind. But I think we appreciate um, Ron Paul for what he did. Yet I think there are many people, myself included, who were, you know, if he were to become president and, you know, I'm sure he'd be probably, you know, of course, the best president of all time, but he's still the head of a, a murderous organization. So I, I don't know. I got mixed feelings with the whole thing. You know what I mean? Like, I see Paul's righteous. I mean, this is the role of every every revolutionary, right? Paul's a revolutionary. He, he's got his ideas about how, how things should be, and he's willing to use violence to achieve those ends. Now, I think he's fairly just i mean the harkonnens in this movie are just cartoonish villains and you're like oh well of course these people are horrible and they should be you know gotten rid of especially on this foreign planet that they're claiming ownership over or like they have the right to be there and do all these things but but then once he becomes emperor i'm like all right no fuck you get get lost uh, uh, you know you you had to adjust thing but then you turned into just another bureaucrat and i don't want to have any yeah so to maybe piggyback on that uh, a little bit um i mean i've kind of view the whole thing as more of a cautionary tale almost like you know the novel 1984 and some of these other books in that dystopian kind of genre it, not that dune is dystopian but 
uh, just that it's cautionary. You have this kind of, okay, these are some things that were effective for Paul or Muad'Dib or whatever you want to call him. And, you know, he's able to rally people to his cause and he has this very effective leadership style and et cetera, et cetera. But then it gets blended in with religious, excuse me, religious fanaticism and kind of gets a personality of its own. And it's almost like even he couldn't stop this from becoming a jihad, right? So it's, you know, he might've even had the best intentions at the outset, but as you progress into power, it starts to dismantle your good intentions. Yeah, Lord Acton style, baby. Right, yes. yeah, for sure. So by the end of this movie, uh, the 1984 one, uh, the Portland Portlandia mayor, he's got control, right? He's become the the new emperor or whatever. So what is his goal um, beyond that? Like, it seems like if he's going to free the people, then he's just enslaving them yet again. So does it continue on in, in the book series, or is there anything else that kind of leads some revelation into what, what happens uh, that we missed from just watching the movie? Um, as I recall, and this is my brain trying to remember, um, I think in the second book, he kind of throws off the whole emperor title, and he just becomes like a wandering guy in the desert. Um, so he doesn't really have a whole lot of say in the day to day. And the people are just kind of left to have this legendary figure um, as a story to tell their children and whatnot. Um, but I think in God Emperor, as I recall, um, the, the spice is very restricted. I don't remember exactly how or explained, but just that, yeah, I want to say it's 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 I remember it being like almost to the point where it's just he's the only one that. And it, it actually makes him like this immortal worm. It gets a little bit weird. I'm not going to lie. It's good, good, good stuff. But so is that like what happened with the navigators? Like they can fold space because they've been using the spice and they've sort of uh, evolutionized or, or had evolution changes happen because of it? I think those are an actual species of creature that can do that with the help of this. Perhaps this is another one of the things that's a little bit different in the novels than uh, in the movie. But it seemed to me like at the very beginning they were talking about, you know, in the when the emperor's daughter was kind of given a narration she said that the the navigators used to be other types of beings and they became kind of these floating brain jelly things that uh, are breathing spice and can do the folding of the space and all that oh okay that, that could very well be maybe maybe look more know more about that well in in dune i mean you know only having read the first book there is no explanation at all of this like space travel like it doesn't talk about folding space or or any of that it's just like, this is what enables space travel. And that's kind of, okay, that's what it is. So you're left to figure out what that would mean. I mean, it, it enables people to navigate through space and, like, find the safe route between stars and not hit space debris and have your ships explode. Um, but, I mean, I, there's nothing about third-level navigators that have these tanks that they live in or any of that, at least in the first book. So in the novel, when they're folding space, is it, like, instantaneous travel, stationary travel? I don't think it's instantaneous yeah because it's like duncan idaho goes to dune like on the first the first batch of ships that leave and so he's like there a week earlier or two weeks earlier than everyone else um or he departs two weeks earlier i don't think it really says how long it takes but there's scenes that happen on the ship like in between so i would think that you know they're they're taking time to get there i just don't remember how long yeah this seems to be another thing that uh because it's his novel and it's his world he can kind of not really have to explain how the mechanism behind it works or something like that. And that's kind of, you know, I, I give that a pass. Right. I mean, it's it's soft sci-fi, right? It's not hard technical, you know, this molecule does this and that's what enables X and Y to occur. 
Um, so, and I, and I like that. Um, Dune has a lot of mysticism to it. And it's almost, in, in some ways, the film suffers for that because it has to give concrete form to some of these things that otherwise your imagination would fill in the gaps and it's no problem. Um, you can point to it in the movie and say, well, I, I don't know about that. Um, like the Harkonnens, I totally was on board with how they were portrayed, even though they're ludicrously evil. Um, but some aspects of the film were like, oh, hey, you know, I don't know about that. Like the shields, for example, these weird boxy things that just spring up around you. It, it's That's not the vibe you get from reading the book. At least I didn't. Um, it's very Tron, like original Tron. <laughs> very <laughs> and, much. Yeah. Yeah. I will. I will say that I really did enjoy um, the world built with maybe maybe it's more explained in the subsequent books. Maybe David Lynch added. I don't know. But I do enjoy the idea that, you know, there's this universe because, you know, space is so huge that there has to be some way for people to travel very, very quickly in order for the emperor to have any kind of claim of any kind of control over anything. Because, you know, he he issues an order for something to happen and <laughs> 10,000 years later it happens. I mean, it's ridiculous. So yeah, I like the idea that there's this spice and it allows for this empire to even exist. And it's, you know, obviously very, very valuable, but it also creates, you know, gives you that kind of powers and long life. And I, I and then there's, there's this natural conflict if there's just one source of it. So from a story standpoint, I, I, the world building. So I guess, uh, what do you guys make of the plot or, you know, like, the Harkonnens have Arrakis, and then in order to dupe or create a trap for the Atreides, they then give the planet to the Atreides to like get their guard down or something like that. I mean, the, if the Emperor is this all-powerful guy, then why does he have to go through all that? And and why does it seem like he's not really in charge? It's more like the guild uh, giving him orders to carry out. I, I, I kind of don't follow. I mean, it kind of convolutes the plot a little bit here, I think. I think it was probably better explained in the book, because in the movie... It's not clear why the emperor needs to play these games. It, he seems to be this, obviously, a very powerful figure if he's the most powerful man in the universe. But then he he is beholden to the, the the spacing guild or the travel guild or whatever you want to call him. Um, and then he has to, you know, lower himself to these maneuvers in order to deal with these houses. It, it seemed strange to me. I didn't really quite understand why it was necessary. Uh, I don't know. Maybe Luke could shed some light on that. Well, it's. You know, this this whole thing is plots within plots and like faint within faints. And that's some verbiage that the book uses a lot. You know, you have all of these different factions and all these different people and in groups that are all maneuvering and vying for power. And, you know, as far as why they're vying for power, I guess it's just just to have power. I don't know that it's better defined than that. But, um, you know, the Bene Gesserit that are sort of explained a little bit in the movie, they kind of have their own motivations. You know, they're planning bloodlines and all of that and trying to have these specific genetic expressions develop so that they can leverage different things. And that's working at odds with the emperor and the emperor is working at odds with all the other great houses. And, you know, so everyone's got these, these crazy things. And I think the movie kind of boils it down to just being a, maybe a triangle, you know, you have the guild, you have the emperor and you have, the Atreides and the Harkonnens are just kind of a proxy for that. And yeah, I think there's just so much more actually going on there. And that's one of the reasons I like this source material so much, uh, because that's like what politics is, you know, all of these interest groups and all of these different people are all trying to leverage themselves and, you know, come up with whatever crazy schemes that they can to achieve their own ends for their people. 
And it just, it turns into this disaster, you know, dumpster fire horror show. And, you know, that's what politics is. This is just a much more um, naked view uh, of that process. Sounds like the uh, democratic debates that we've been seeing on TV lately. Uh, did either of you envision uh, Harkonnen as the that baby Trump blimp that they were flying around London or whatever when they were protesting uh, uh, Donald Trump as president, something like that? No. <laughs> but now that you've said it, I can't not think about it. Yeah, that's the first thing that came to mind when I saw that. And, and you know, speaking of the Democratic debates, I mean, I think H.L. Mencken was right when he said that uh, every election is an advanced auction on uh, stolen goods. And, and you see that with all the promises that they're making and basically no plan to pay for it other than just taxing the wealthy or taxing the rich. But it always uh, ends up taxing everybody. And taxes are, of course, a detriment to society. Oh, absolutely. Vote for me. I'll steal all this money and give it to you. So I guess my working theory on this is that the spice is what enables the empire to exert its control or, or exert its influence into greater and greater, vaster reaches of space. And so maybe Paul's plan is a bit revolutionary, you know, to like throw off the shackles of the empire by uh, eliminating or, or distur- disrupting the supply of spice so that they can no longer project their power. So in a way, it's a decentralization movement, like I was trying to say um, earlier uh, it's, you know, it's secessionist, it's uh, American Revolution, and, and I also noticed, like, some Russian Revolution-type parallels in this movie. Uh, so, I don't know, it's uh, it seems like that, that it's a way of um, freeing the people by uh, mitigating the power that can be exerted against them. So, is the spice the one ring? Is that what you're saying right now? Yeah, I, I guess you could say that. And, and uh, you know, it's sort of like oil um, allows the U.S. military to project its power uh, around the world and, of course, you know, influence in the Middle East, which seems to be where this um, story, the novel, and, and even the, this movie are sort of drawing some of its inspiration from, or at least in the world-building aspect of it. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it just seems like uh, that's kind of where this is coming from, you know? Yeah, I mean, for, for what it is, like, I think... Again, you kind of you do better with the movie if you've read the book, but it is it is fun and it's definitely different. It's not, you know, your run of the mill Marvel movie or whatever. Like it's not the same plot devices unfolding in the same pattern with the same filler humor that you would get like at any movie that you go to. It's definitely a unique thing and worth worth participating in at least one time. Yeah, I I think that's a good point. And Robert, I'll I'll direct this one at you. But, um, you know, this came out like uh, shortly after. Star Wars was a big uh, box office sensation, and I think um, at least Denny uh, Villeneuve and, and maybe even uh, David Lynch had said that they thought that Dune was more of a story of um, Star Wars, but for grown-ups. And I, I guess that lends itself to you know additional complication in the plot because uh, Star Wars is you know more simple or, or more like uh, for the youths or the the young people. Something uh, I don't know. What do, what do you? What's your take on that? Well, there's definitely a lot more going on. But it's so simplified in this film. I mean, in, in Star Wars is very white hat, black hat. Luke Skywalker's clearly the super good guy. Darth Vader's clearly the super evil guy. Um, but at least Star Wars had some character development. Like Luke turns and you know, his character changes and Han Solo's character changes. Um, in this movie, there's, there's no time given to character development. So we just have these cartoonishly good Atreides guys and the cartoonishly bad, bad guy, Harkonnen guys, because we don't have time to get into any kind of nuance. Um, I don't know if this kind of storytelling is even going to last a whole lot longer. Like I, I, you know, with the way that long form storytelling is really taking off with the streaming service, like with Game of Thrones, I mean, people really fell into Game of Thrones because of the 
massive amount of time that they gave to the characters and the ability for the characters to really change and grow and you know do all kinds of awesome cool stuff whereas when into the last stuff, season well we all know it shit the bed at the end but up, up until that point everybody was on board or most a lot of people were really into the characters for the love of the characters whereas in this film you're just like I mean, you could replace any of these characters with cardboard cutouts. And, you know, Paul is generic hero guy. Duke Harkonnen is generic evil cackling villains. Just it, it seems very amateurish compared to what we get these days with the streaming services. So I, I don't know how they're going to do it in two movies. Hopefully they, they really take their time and they let the characters breathe and they really let us get into those things. But I think Dune is something that's better suited to probably seasons on Netflix or Amazon or something like that. Um, I know that there was a sci-fi series out of sci-fi. Um, William Hurt was in it, but... Yeah, 2000 maybe. Yeah, but I guess the, the budget was really terrible, and I don't know, I never... But uh, done right, this could be a, a Game of Thrones-type quality level of entertainment. I love the world building. I love the theme. Um, like, you know, there's some mysticism, like Luke was saying. Frank Herbert really got into, I mean, I love that he came up with words like, you know, Kitsak Sadarak and Gam Jabbar and, you know, these kinds of concepts that, you know, Paul Mwadib, you know, he changes his name and it's all really cool world building stuff. And it's just, it's a shame that there isn't a better movie wrapped around. Yeah, if you like those words like that, then you might like uh, Outraper or, well, that's what my wife and I call Outlander. But anyway, do we have any um, other things we want to cover before we start to wind this thing down, uh, Luke? Um, I think we hit all the, the high points from my notes. Um, if I can maybe just really throw you for a loop and encourage you to read the book yourself, Daniel, the weirding module, that whole thing does not even exist in the book <laughs> so it's just all added and it's all weird and so um that is it's like instead of having the knowledge of the desert and having all of this you know and i actually have three pages worth of just differences between the book and the movie that i scribbled down while watching but that's one of the biggest things because it's not a it makes the whole tone of the end different because he's in the book, leveraging the fact that he understands the native people and he understands all of this, uh, you know, subtlety, and he's developed all of these senses and all this stuff. He doesn't have mystical powers other than seeing the future. He just has, you know, he can't make it rain or whatever in the book. He can't, um, he can't summon all the worms around him just by being himself. <laughs> it's all these weird things that kind of make it more cinematic that just don't really work. Um, those things I think work to the detriment of the film in a lot of ways, but I, you know, maybe I'll save this for the summary and review, but um, I think a Lord of the Rings type treatment where you have the music and you have some of these other things that are actually fleshed out would be the difference. Like I'd be totally happy with this movie if there was just about 2.5 times as much of it. Yeah. I, I didn't have a big problem with the, the special effects. I thought the battle scenes were a little hokey where it's just kind of a bit. People yelling and pointing off screen and shooting at stuff but uh other than that um i didn't have a problem with the worms or the i mean the the shields were a little goofy but you know for the most part it, it held up visually i and I've, I've i've watched worse movies you know visual worse movies so i just wish that there was you know some characters that i really cared about can get into them. well you guys must have been running run, uh, rubbing genie lamps because that seems to be what's going to be happening in the next uh, year or two so anyway um we should probably get into final summary review. So uh, Luke, you want to start us off here? Yeah. So the, again, you know, so 
breaking this into multiple parts, I think is probably the best thing that could have happened. Um, there's just, and I think Robert and I are kind of telling the same story here, but um, it's, there are just amazing works of fictional interplay between the characters and all of this stuff that just aren't there um, in the film. And so not to be that guy where it's just complaining about, well, it isn't as good as the book because everyone does that with every movie adaptation of every book. And I, I fully realize, but in a very real and tangible sense, there is so much that makes the story what it is that just isn't present. Um, that's, that's my biggest pain point on this. Um, as far as the acting, I thought it was all great. There were some awkward points just by like modern eyes looking back on 1984 acting that was a little bit kind of comical, um, maybe awkward is the better word, but I think the quality was there and the soundtrack was good again for the time. I don't think that's I would have done the, the soundtrack in a modern day uh, or even maybe not at that time, but I think it works just fine. Um, I have to go a little low on this and maybe say a six just because it could have been so good and it just isn't. Well, thank you for that, uh, Luke. And, you know, as I uh, just watched the movie and didn't read the novel, I have to just look at the movie for what it is. And, you know, with the limitations that it seems like uh, David Lynch had, I, I, I see a lot of stuff kind of trying to fit in. And, yeah, maybe it doesn't really um, explore the characters or have a whole lot of development. But I think overall... Uh, you're telling a pretty com complicated story and there's a lot of visualization that happens in here. And, and like I said earlier, you're seeing a lot of like revolutionary type stuff. And uh, so, you know, the, the Freemen, the Fremen are, are maybe like the colonists and um, they're throwing off the shackles of, of the British in the, uh, uh, who was it? Uh, King Henry or King George or something like that, who uh, the tax rate was what? Something like 3% and, and they had a revolt over that, you know, through tea into the harbor and now now we're sitting at like 40 45 percent and and these democratic debates are talking about confiscating even more money but anyway i think it's a it's a pretty good um allegory for that kind of a story and uh for for what it is i think that they did a, a pretty fine job yeah it's george the third is there yeah thank you for that robert and you know you can definitely tell that this is a david lynch movie you know he's got a very distinctive style and it and it really stands out in this um, and, you know, for the most part, I think it's pretty well done. Like I said, the visuals and all that. So I'm going to go with uh, a seven on this one. And, you know, I, I have really high hopes for the next one or the next, you know, two part that's going to come out, uh, I think, starting in December 2020. And I don't know, that might be one even um, worth seeing in the theater along those lines. But anyway, um, that's my score. So how about for you, Robert? What's your score? OK, so I was wrong earlier when I called it Duke Harkonnen. It's Baron Harkonnen. Want everybody know, I do know that. Um, but I, I enjoy, like I said before in this show, I, I enjoy writing. When he comes up with things like theory of the mind, I, I think that's a, a cool little thing that really kind of lets you into this world. He does that all over and over and over again. So the world building, he just spent so much time and came up with such a cool creation of this universe and this product that everybody would want and it would instantly be the most expensive thing. Um, you know, it's great. But, but the movie is... A huge letdown, and it is. A, it's, I think it's a disaster. As as watchable as it is, because of the interesting things you're seeing, it is completely devoid of drama. There's no buildup. There's no tension. There's no release. There's no relief. There's no agony of defeat. There's no you know triumph of victory. There's we don't care about the characters long enough to you know when they die. We're like, who cares? Um, 
terrific acting is wasted. Um, Patrick Stewart, standout as Gurney Halleck, but he's got, you know, maybe a, a few minutes of screen time. Um, yeah, it's it, this is as, as interesting and as good as the whole movie is, since it lacks a plot or characters that anybody cares about, I can't recommend it. I can't even give it a positive score. I still think it's watchable, and I think if you've read the book and you just kind of want to have it as a companion piece, then I think, sure, have it in your collection. Check it out. Watch it from time to time. But I don't think that you're going to bring new people to the Dune universe by showing them this. Hopefully, this remake can do it. But you're not telling any kind of engaging story. You had to cut out so much to fit like the entire story of Dune in this movie that you've just completely lost the plot. It's just basically, like I said, it's it's somebody telling it to you secondhand in not an exciting way. So I think this is like a four. I think this is just not as watchable it is for someone who's a fan of the universe. It's just not something that is going to engage any kind of actual average viewer. I, I don't know why Daniel actually gave this a positive score, but I kudos to you, sir, for actually finding value in this movie. Um, value is subjective. Absolutely. 100%. More power to you for, for liking it as much as you did. Um, and I and I do like it. I actually do like it. This is the first like movie I'm giving a negative score to that I like, but I can't recommend it because it's a movie that fails on almost every level and every level that matters. Right. Like you go to a movie to to care about the characters, care what happens to them, to understand what the hell is even happening and then to relish in their victory at the end. And I felt none of that. It's a movie that you feel no emotion while watching. And that is just terrible. You, there's no connection with the audience. That's that is the cardinal sin of storytelling is to not build a connection with your audience. So that I can't give it any kind of positive. Well, let me ask you this, Robert. Would you consider that to be part of David Lynch's style, though? If you think about his other films, he sort of has this like psychotic detachment. Well, then I think he was the absolutely the wrong director for this story, for this movie. If that's if that's his style to make it as boring and detached from any kind of emotion for the audience at all. If you're telling the triumphant revolutionary story of the down on their luck, downtrodden, beaten into submission Fremen versus the evil overlord Harkonnen masters, I think any director worth his salt could make that exciting and interesting. But Lynch manages to turn it into somebody's freaking slideshow from their vacation it's terrible just atrocious all right so what was your number four a four all right so a, a six a seven and a four all right well very good well hey thank you gentlemen for discussing this film tonight and we will be back next week uh there is a second zombie land film coming out into theaters this month and so we're inviting Rachel from Cannabis Heals Me to come back on and talk about the first Zombieland. It's a movie that she wanted to do originally. And I was like, well, let's hold off until we're close, uh, a little bit closer to Zombieland 2 coming out. So that time is now. She was with us a couple of months ago for Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle. And that was a fun discussion with her. Fantastic. Looking forward to it. All right. Well, Luke, uh, thanks again for being our guest on The Last Nighters. Uh, the show notes and more for everyone can be found at lastnighters.com slash 92. We will have links to your website. Uh, for your game studio, Human Action Studios. Your game is Dummy Corporation, and you mm -hmm. have a promotion going on until the 16th, so if anyone would like to support you there, um, I would recommend that they do so, so we will have links for that available. And uh, any final words for audience before you say goodnight? 
Uh, well, thanks so much for joining us on this crazy 1984 adventure. It's been something else. All right. Very good. And uh, again, we'll be back next week with Zombieland. And if you like what we do here, uh, give us a rating and review on the old iTunes, or you can hit us up at Patreon at lastnares.com slash Patreon. And uh, we will see you guys all next week. So good night from last night, everyone. All right, and just a few more minutes on the Actual Anarchy podcast. Uh, we were running a little bit long there, Robert, so I will give you the floor for your final words for the audience and anything else uh, related to that for the Actual Anarchy portion of the wind down here. You want me to just kind of spitball some kind of rando talk? I can do that, maybe, sort of, kind of. It's kind of your jam, so, you know. Is it my Jimmy Jam? Well, as the, the weather gets colder... Um, hopefully you got someone to snuggle up with and hold tight and tell them you love them. And I want to tell Luke, who I barely know, that thank you for the show. I was going to tell you that I love you, but I, that's, you know, I love you like a brother that uh, is in the same liberty movement. But it's well, not thanks. <laughs> uh, right back at you, Robert. Yeah, and Luke, yeah, I, that's, I think that's you're doing show, man. you're doing great work over there on, hey, on your you. uh, game studio. Now, has, has your podcast been... Um, updated have you been hitting that recently or because i know you had a uh, a surgery and that was holding you up for a little bit yeah um so that was back on tax day it was the most you know i guess, I guess the, the most, most interesting, interesting day it could have been on um so it's thankfully all healed up and everything's good on that um but yeah I've, right now i'm just at the point where i'm splitting my attention so much between a game studio and and this uh the podcast that I have done a couple of episodes recently where it's my appearances on other programs instead of some new content. So I <laughs> regret to have to do that, but that's what I've done. Uh, but yeah, every two weeks I have a new episode up. All right. Very good. Well, I highly recommend it, especially the the one where I was your guest. Yeah, that was a great episode. It's one of the best episodes ever, I'm pretty sure. So, <laughs> um, and I have uh, links to those uh, guest appearances on my uh, personal website, danielelwood.com. And uh, you can also find it at cultureofpeace.com. Or no, it's luketatum.com, right? It's luketatum.com. Yeah, someday I'm going to transition that all over. I own cultureofpeacepodcast.com, but have not built a website for it yet. Okay, well, maybe maybe we can talk and I'll uh, help you get that up and running. We can do something <laughs> real quick and dirty on that. But uh, anyway, thank you again for being our guest and uh, actual anarchy audience. Thank you for being our audience. Uh, this has been episode 149 of the show. Show notes more at actualanarchy.com slash 149. Robert, the final word. Thanks for listening, everybody. I look forward to being there for you again next week when we do Zombie Land. Uh, as I recall, there's like what Woody Harrelson and uh, Lex Luthor, the actor that played Lex Luthor, Jesse Jesse Eisenberg. Yeah, that sounds uh, right. Yeah, yeah. So that should be a fun one. And um, yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you tonight. Thank you to Luke for coming on. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you next time. All right. Well, peace out, everyone. Maximum freedom. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do, do.
デレレレデデデレレレdays of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com.